All right, so if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Galatians 2. Galatians 2, and we're going to be in verses 1 to 14 for tonight. And let me just pray again for us, and then we'll, we'll jump right in, okay? So let's pray. Father, as we open your word now, um, I pray that you would give us just a confidence um, that this comes from you, that this is truth. Uh, I pray that you give us humility to hear with um, soft hearts and open ears. And I pray that you give us understanding um, just to take these words and uh, their meaning and to apply it to our own lives um, personally and specifically. And uh, yeah, show us just the hope of the gospel and how that ought to change the way that we live and um, even the way that we ought to view other people. And so do that now through the preaching of your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're just going to jump in. Okay, so this is um, our third message um, so far in Galatians. And if you remember what I said about the, the structure or the flow of this letter, um, chapters one and two is Paul's autobiography, right? It's his defense of his apostleship. Um, chapters three and four is a defense of the gospel message when he actually starts to talk about the content of the, the gospel. And then chapters five and six is kind of the application. Okay? It's the, the ethics or the um, implications of living the gospel out. And last time we looked at Galatians 1, 11 to 24, and the title of that message or the main idea of that message um, was that the gospel is not man's gospel. Right? The, the key verse or verses that I told you guys to underline was Galatians 1, 11, and 12, where Paul says, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And um, the reason why Paul is going out to explain this, right, why this is not man's gospel is because this had implications for his credentials as an apostle, right? Um, so that's why he spends these first two chapters in Galatians talking about. And we mentioned how uh, there were some rumors, some claims or accusations that these Judaizers were making that Paul was some sort of like second-rate apostle with a second-hand gospel. And so Paul defends his um, apostolic authority by telling us a story, right? Telling us about his origins, um, his conversion, and, and his calling. And last week we saw how Paul did personally meet Jesus, right? He, he was uh, directly commissioned by Jesus Christ on the way to Damascus, where Jesus saved him, right? Knocked him to the ground and transformed him and uh, saved him from this persecutor of the church to a preacher to the Gentiles. Uh, but not only that, Paul's gospel wasn't just received right from, uh, from God, but it was not influenced. It was not taught or derived, by, uh, they're not derived from any man. And that's why Paul tells us about you know, all these different places he went and all the people that he knew or didn't know. Uh, he was trying to tell us that he didn't go to double check his version of the gospel. He didn't have to like, uh, verify it with the other apostles in Jerusalem. In fact, he remained largely independent from them, and he was even unknown to most of them for a very long time. And so as we arrive at our passage for tonight, um, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. Um, Let me just give you a quick roadmap of of how we're going to do this, okay? Um, I already briefly touched on verses 1 to 10 of chapter 2 last week, and so we won't spend too long um, on these verses. I'll just kind of explain what's going on, and then I want to focus really on verses 11 to 14. And I'm going to do most of just the exposition um, and unpacking the text and kind of explaining what's going on. I'll do that up front so we know like what's happening here. And then I'm going to save the application actually for the end. Okay, so it's going to come, most of it's going to come later. And so let's read uh, our passage. I'll just read verses 1 to 10 for now. Okay, Galatians 2 starting in verse 1. It says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. 
But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. To those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. We'll stop right there. Um, some of the Beacon staffers were, were sharing with me uh, that a few of you mentioned in small groups last week that you were really helped or you really uh, appreciated just kind of learning the context, right, or learning the background of this letter and how kind of understanding all of that um, helped you to better understand chapters one and two here. It's kind of make sense of what was going on. Um, and first off, I want to say that was really encouraging um, for me to hear. Uh, I think like any teacher, right, of any subject, I think it's rewarding uh, for me to witness just like that process of discovery for you guys, um, especially when it's with scripture. Right? And I, I hope you guys see that God's word is just so rich, right? And, and we uncover that um, through the hard work of Bible study. We uncover that through learning about these kinds of details like background and history um, and, and all, that, all that kind of stuff, right? That's why this is important. Um, but I want you to realize that a lot of the, the background and the context uh, that I mentioned last week that you can learn for yourself, right? Like you can find that out in a, a Bible or like a study Bible. And so um, I get paid to do this. Like I, I probably have more resources than you guys do, but you guys can learn the same things. So just to encourage you guys to, to do that, um, but second, at the same time, often what we get in scripture, and especially in Paul's letters, is that we just get this like snapshot or we get a glimpse of this like bigger ongoing historical situation. Okay? Imagine trying to figure out uh, like exactly what's going on, this entire situation from eavesdropping on like a five minute phone conversation. And you only get to hear one side of the conversation. Right? That's kind of like what we're trying to do when we're trying to piece together just the background of something, uh, an epistle, right? And this happens in a lot of Paul's letters. And of course, there's ways that scholars and commentators, they can fill in some of the details um, through history and other books of the Bible and other sources. But sometimes it's just hard to pinpoint exactly what was going on. And I mentioned that because what we have here in Galatians is, is like that. Right? We can sort of piece together um, best we can, try to figure out what's happening, um, but some of the minor details sometimes we just don't know for sure. Okay, we kind of have to just speculate. Um, and so that's what we're going to kind of see tonight as we go through this. Um, but what's happening here in our passage? Look at verse 1 again. Paul says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So I think a big part of understanding this passage is actually just figuring out like who's who. Right? And um, I think aside from Paul and maybe um, Cephas or just another name for Peter, it's hard to kind of figure out like who are the different people in this story. And so the first people that we get introduced to here are who Paul calls those who seemed influential. Right, those who seemed influential. And who he's talking about here are the other apostles in Jerusalem. If you look in verse 9, he actually gives us some of those names. He says, it's Peter, James, John, and he calls them the pillars of the church. Right, these were some of the, the most well-known apostles. And uh, Paul is actually going to use that phrase, those who seemed influential, a few times in our passage. He's going to use it in verse 2, verse 6, and verse 9. And I know when we read that, it kind of sounds like Paul is being dismissive, 
right? Like it kind of t- sounds like he's taking shots at their authority, kind of undermining them. Right? Like if we were to say, oh, like this person seems smart, right? Or like this person seems kind of cool. Um, that's, that's not really saying they're smart, right? It's like, it's almost like an insult against them. And so it kind of sounds like Paul's doing that, uh, but he's not, okay, just to be clear, um, or at least not personally against those apostles. If anything, it's a shot at those in the church. He, he puts it that way because he's cautioning these Galatian believers against putting these guys, Peter, James, and John, on a pedestal. And so far already in Galatians, we've like seen that happen a little bit, right? They, they like, they're constantly comparing Paul to these apostles, thinking that they get, he gets his authority from them. Um, and so I think this is actually something that we need to hear, right? Like in our day where this age of celebrity, um, even like Christian celebrity, we like to put people on pedestals. And Paul is saying, yeah, like we ought to respect, we ought to honor these kinds of people, but not above the gospel, right? Not above what God says, um, and so that's why he puts it that way. We'll come back to this later. Um, why does he go? So Paul says, uh, his reason in verse 2 is to set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. And here's the reason. In order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, is Paul saying that he's like having second thoughts? Is he saying that, oh, I'm not sure, you know, after 14 years of ministry, do I actually have the right gospel? Um, is he saying like all of a sudden he needed confirmation, you know, from Jerusalem 14 years later? And to that, I would say no. First of all, he goes because of a revelation, right? That's what he says. And, and you can read about that revelation in Acts 11, um, Acts 11, 27 to 30. And I, I think the, the reason for this particular meeting wasn't because Paul was unsure, but it's because he wanted to be on the same page um, for the purpose of ministry. He wanted to make sure he and these other apostles were preaching the same message so that they wouldn't contradict each other. Right? They wanted to make sure that this wouldn't be a, a stumbling block or an obstacle in their ministry together. And so that's the reason he goes. He brings along, um, he says, Barnabas and Titus. And here's the notable thing that happened during that visit. Okay, while they're there, verse 4 says that some false brothers, they slipped in secretly to their meeting and they pressured Titus, who... Uh, Paul says was a Greek and Greek is just another way of saying Gentile okay, who was a Gentile and they're pressuring Titus to get circumcised and I want you to notice how Paul describes what these false brothers were trying to do right not only were they trying to get Titus circumcised but they were trying to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us back into slavery see that Paul saying they're trying to make us take a step backwards right? they're trying to undo the gospel of grace. They're trying to revert back to what you have been saved from, what you have been freed from. And I know for us, um, circumcision seems like strange, right? Like really random. Um, but to any God-fearing religious person back in that day, circumcision would have been considered a good thing. Okay, After all, God com- commanded it in, in his word. Right? It was a sign that you belonged to the covenant people of God. And so, like, this wouldn't have been this, like, super random, strange kind of thing. This would have been a good thing that God actually told them to do before. Um, but like we've been saying, Paul understood that to add this work of circumcision on top of Christ's perfect work in the gospel, to add anything to the gospel was an attack on the gospel itself. And so that's why Paul says in verse 5, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Okay, so um, this is all happening. What's even more significant about what happens here in chapter 2 is that not only did Paul oppose these false brothers, but these other apostles stood with Paul. Okay, they were on Paul's side. And verse 6, Paul says, they added nothing to me. Right? They didn't change my message. They didn't detract from my message. They also did not force Titus to be circumcised. And not only that, but in verse 7, they recognized Paul's calling as an apostle to the Gentiles. Um, I think that word in verse 7, entrusted, is is significant. um, Because if you've been entrusted with something, that means that you are a steward of it. right? It, It means that you don't own it. It doesn't belong to you. That neither Paul nor the other apostles owned their own gospel message. 
but they had been entrusted with it. They'd been tasked with it, right, to bring it to all peoples. And for Peter, that was to the Jews. Uh, for Paul, that was to the Gentiles. And so when you think about, like, these accusations of Paul that we've been talking about, that he was this, like, second-rate apostle, right, he wasn't actually one of them. When you think about these accusations that he had derived his gospel um, from, like, the OG apostles, do you see what Paul is saying here, how he's kind of refuting that? Right? He's saying, my authority doesn't come from these apostles. We are on equal ground. In fact, the apostles themselves in verse 9, they affirm that because they give me the right hand of fellowship. Rather, we are co-laborers for the gospel. That the same God who has entrusted us both with the gospel is the same God who works through our ministries uh, to Jews and Gentiles. You'll see that in verse 9. And so that's what's happening in verses 1 to 10. I know it's kind of a lot. Um, and in many ways, I think this is kind of an extension um, of what we talked about last week, right? We, we talked about how Paul defends his apostolic ministry, the validity of the authority of the gospel. We saw how he was independent, right? His authority as an apostle was independent from these other apostles. And yet here, verses 1 to 10 kind of complements that, right? Because it shows that even though he was independent, that they were united in their message. They believed the same gospel, they were preaching the same message. But something else that these verses do is that they set us up. Right? If, if verses 1 to 10 is a complement to what we looked at last week, then I think verses 1 to 10 is also a contrast to what we're going to look at next, which is verses 11 to 14. And so as we read this, as you kind of visualize this next scene, I want you to keep in mind verses 1 to 10, okay? what we just talked about. So verse 11. But when Cephas, and again, that's Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here in in verse 11, we've moved from Jerusalem, which would have been um, Peter's home base, right, um, where the other apostles are. And now we're in Antioch, and Antioch is actually uh, Paul's home base. And and Paul tells us about this kind of tense, kind of awkward confrontation that he actually had with Cephas or with Peter, right? And it, like, by the way he puts it, it actually seems um, pretty intense, right? He says, I opposed him to his face. And this is actually a really fascinating passage. It's two of the most influential individuals in Christianity in the early church, and one of them is rebuking the other one. Now, what happened here? When Peter came to Antioch, verse 12 says that Peter was eating with the Gentiles, Okay, and actually, um, that's the verb tense of that is imperfect. And all that means is this was ongoing action. Okay, this wasn't like a one-time thing. So he was freely and um, kind of frequently eating with the Gentiles. And all you, need to, all you need to know about that is that was socially taboo. Okay, that was not okay for Jews and Gentiles to eat together. Um, eating together, especially in that day, and we kind of still relate to that relate to this, but eating together is something very significant. Okay, It's like a sign of close fellowship. Um, think about just how outraged the Pharisees were when they found out Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors. Right? It wasn't just because they were like in the same room you know, eating food at the same time. It's because it was a sign of fellowship, of intimacy, of relationship. Um, in fact, the Christians in that early church were known for these things called love feasts. Uh, which was uh, just this sign of hospitality, something that was very char- characteristic of, um, of the early church and Christianity. And because eating together was such an important part of their culture, there were certain rules or there are certain regulations to guard it, so to speak. You talked about how Jews and Gentiles didn't like each other. And so, of course, the Jews are going to have rules that protect this really like sacred time. Right? They had things like 
Um, they had laws which prohibited things like using the same vessels or the same utensils as the Gentiles. Or as a Jew, you couldn't eat certain unclean foods. Um, or maybe you couldn't even be with Gentiles altogether. Right? You just couldn't be seen with them. And so here, Peter, understanding the freedom that he had in the gospel, was freely breaking bread together with um, these Gentiles. And in fact, there's, there's a bit of um, backstory. There's a bit of personal history that made this like uh, really meaningful to Peter. If you read in the book of Acts, chapter 9 and 10, God gave Peter this vision. And it's kind of a, an interesting vision, but um, something like this great sheet, it says, came down from heaven, and in it were all kinds of animals. Okay, and um, they're unclean animals, so like, uh, like pork belly or like shellfish or like non-kosher kind of stuff. Um, and God says to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And maybe you guys are familiar with this. Uh, Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Basically, I've never eaten Gentile food. And God says to Peter, what God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common. He says that actually three times. And, and after this vision, Peter recognizes that, that his dream, this vision, is actually this like symbol of the gospel being spread to the Gentiles. He says that in Acts 10, 28. And um, I know that doesn't mean a lot to us, like hearing that, but this is a massive turning point in redemptive history. Right? That the gospel, gospel would go not just to Israel, but to non-Israel. Right? The nations, the Gentiles. And previously it would have been considered unlawful for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. Um, but Peter telling someone else says, God has shown me that I shouldn't call anyone uncommon or common. Right? I shouldn't call anyone unclean. The gospel is for anyone and for everyone. And actually later, shortly afterwards, Peter preaches the gospel to this Gentile named Cornelius. And Cornelius and his whole household end up getting saved. Um, not long after that, in Acts 11, Acts 11, 2 and 3, it says that the circumcision party, right? Same words, maybe the same people. Circumcision party criticizes Peter for eating with uncircumcised men, uh, men for eating with Gentiles. And in that instance, Peter responds by recounting those specific events, that dream that he just had in Acts 9 and 10. And he tells them, if God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Right? Who am I to say that if God is saying that I can't call anyone unclean, then who am I to say that the gospel can't go to the Gentiles? That's basically what Peter says there. But that Peter, and even the Peter that we just read about in verses 1 to 10, that is not the same Peter that we see here in verses 11 to 14. Right? And this is one of those spots that um, like we said earlier, I think we kind of have to try to piece uh, you know, our, our data together as best we can to try to figure out what's happening. Uh, but what, what we know is that the presence of, um, Paul says, certain men come from James, and James is in Jerusalem, and also Peter's fear of the circumcision party, that those things prompted Peter, who was previously just eating freely with Gentiles, it prompted him to draw back. It prompted him to withdraw, to separate himself from the Gentiles he was just freely eating with. And um, whether those men from James and, and the circumcision party are like the same group of people or whether they're two different groups of people, there's, there's kind of debate on that. It seems that there was some persecution, right? There was uh, some ramification, some consequences from Peter's fellowship with Gentiles. There were some people who were not fans of what what Peter was doing. And so hearing the news of that, hearing the threat of that, out of fear, Peter withdrew. And Paul says that he acted hypocritically. He uses that word two times in verse 13. He acted hypocritically. And I think most of us, um, we probably know what that means, right? To, to act uh, hypocritically. Um, that word hypocrite actually in Greek originally referred to an actor. It referred to someone who was on stage, someone who wore a mask. And kind of over time, we like now understand it kind of figuratively in that way, right? A hypocrite is someone um, who just plays the part, right? Who's someone who is two-faced, who just says one thing and then does another. 
And um, one of the, the frequent critiques against Christians, whether fairly or unfairly, is that Christians are hypocrites, right? That we, we profess or we, we teach one thing and then yet the actions don't line up. Now, you know how I told you to, to keep verses 1 to 10 in mind, right, as we, as we read here? Um, so remember what happened in Jerusalem as we read what happened here in Antioch. Um, and I think Paul wants us to keep that in mind because he uses some of the same words here as he does earlier in our passage. Um, if you look in verse 14, Paul says to Peter, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. And then if you look up at verse 3, right back in Jerusalem, verse 3 says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And then similarly, uh, verse 14, Paul says that Peter's conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And look back up at verse 5. Paul says, to the false brothers, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Right? Like, they totally contradict each other. Right? Totally inconsistent. Now, had Peter's gospel, had his theological stance changed? Right? Did all of a sudden he believe that you know, Gentiles were not actually part of the people of God? No, I don't think so. I mean, and Paul rebukes Peter for hypocrisy. Right? Not for heresy. He doesn't correct his false teaching. It wasn't his belief um, but it was his behavior. And I think maybe we, we, can, we can speculate, you know, whether the circumstances influenced Peter at all. I mean, verses 1 to 10, um, it's like, it's almost like this, like, church council, right? Like, I imagine just, like, an elders meeting, or you're, like, in front of all these religious leaders, right? And they're, like, defending gospel purity together, and Peter takes this stand for the gospel. And then verses 11 to 14, it's just, like, hanging out. Right? It's just like breaking bread in someone's home. Um, yeah, it just feels like the stakes are higher, right? In, in verses 1 to 10, verses 11 to 14. Um, or in verses 1 to 10, the issue was circumcision. Right? In verses 11 to 14, the issue was probably not circumcision, but just like food loss. And again, um, just, it just seems like the, the stakes are higher, right? One of them versus the other. You guys can figure that out. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you have found yourself in a situation just where like your gospel conviction was put to the test. Right? Maybe you felt that temptation um, to compromise and you're like, you know, I, I don't want to be seen as legalistic. Right? I don't want to be seen as that like crazy Christian. Right? I don't want to be seen as one of those guys. Like, why can't we just chill out a little bit? Why, why do you have to be so serious? I imagine that's kind of how Peter felt. Whatever the reason, the point is that Peter's conduct, the way that he lived, his actions, that it didn't match up with what he preached. And I think Paul knew that Peter knew it. And when he says in in verse 1, he says that he stood condemned. In other words, Peter, you know that you're wrong. I know that you're wrong. You know that you're wrong. And what happened as a result of Peter's hypocrisy? Verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I mean, I, I think we can kind of get like how that might happen. I mean, like it's, it's understandable that um, the actions of someone prominent like Peter, you know, whether good or bad, that it would influence others in, in one way or another. But I think the more significant implication for us, whether you think that you have authority or not, is that hypocrisy and sin and compromise, that it has consequences. It, it does affect other people. I mean, it, it says even here that, that even Barnabas, right? and when you read those words, you can like almost hear just the, the grief in Paul's words. Barnabas was a dear ministry partner with Paul. It went on their, their first missionary journey together. Even Barnabas was led astray. Right, do you think that moment where, where Peter was like, you know, I'll just I'll give in to the, uh, this circumcision party. Do you think that Peter envisioned that happening? Right, that, that this might lead even Barnabas to go astray. Right, do you think he contemplated just the possibility of that? Probably not. 
right? Because that's what sin does. It, it front loads uh, to make it not look so bad, right? It, it deceives us. And that's how we often justify hypocrisy and compromise. You say, oh, it's not a big deal. Right? It won't affect anyone. I have my doctrine right. I have uh, my theology right. I believe the gospel. And we minimize the, the message and the gospel that our actions are preaching, right? That our lives are preaching. We find every excuse or reason to justify what we're doing. And Paul, he doesn't mince his words that here. He says, you know what you're doing? You're out of step with the gospel. You're out of step with the gospel. See, I think it's significant that Galatians reminds us that being a Christian and the gospel that we hold to, it's not just like a label, right? It's not just a, a body of beliefs. It's not just a list of things that we're supposed to do. Uh, because if the gospel or if being a Christian is just like a badge that we wear, if it's just a title, then when you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, then you can just say, oh, well, he must not be a very good Christian. Right? He must not be very serious about his or her religion. But if the gospel is more fundamentally, as we see in Galatians, if it is good news, if the gospel is not what you're supposed to do, but what God has done for you and his grace towards you in Jesus Christ, then being out of step with the gospel is not just failing to live a certain way. Rather, your life is preaching a message that contradicts the very message that you're supposedly all about. Right? Your, your life is sending news that's contrary to the news of the gospel. Your life and actions are saying something to others about what the gospel is and about the character of God. You know, in this case, no matter what Peter might have affirmed um, theologically, doctrinally, his life was preaching a message to the Gentiles that said, you know what? Actually, you, you do have to become first like us. You know what? God actually like, does favor a certain kind of person. And that's what his life was preaching. That's what his actions were preaching. And so what about you guys, Beacon? Are there any areas of your life where you might be out of step with the gospel? Where your belief and your actions don't match up? And does your life reflect the good news? Or does it contradict it? Does your life make other people feel like the burden of the law? Do they feel the, the hope of grace? Right? The, the sweetness of God's grace? What does your life communicate about what the gospel is? What is important? Who you belong to? Right, already in Galatians, we've seen a few different ways that you know, we can do that, that we can be out of step with the gospel. I think spiritual pride, um, just this sense of superiority over others. Um, I think legalism, like feeling like we have to perform or we have to just like uh, flaunt our own self-righteousness that's being out of step with the gospel. And so what might, be to, what might it be for you? In what ways does your life and your actions do not match up with the good news that we believe in? I know that's a, a pretty broad question. And so uh, just for the remainder of our time, um, I want to focus just a little more specifically on what the gospel means for how we view others. So like I said, I'm going to save the application for the end. So here we are. Um, how does it change how we view other people? What does it look like to be out of step with the gospel and how we treat others, especially those who might be different than you? And how does the gospel speak to our pursuit and our sense of belonging and just wanting to be accepted by others? You know, when you just scan through our passage, one of the ideas that comes up over and over and over again is that the gospel ought to dramatically transform how we view other people. Right? I think the most obvious example is the Jew and Gentile divide. Right? Um, but even more than that, like if you look in verse 10, what's the one thing that the apostles asked Paul, Barnabas, and Titus to do? Right? What is the one thing that their respective ministries ought to have in common, whether they are ministering to Jews or to Gentiles? Verse 10 says... Uh, we want you to remember the poor. Right? We want you to, uh, whoever you're preaching to, right? we want you to remember those who are marginalized, disenfranchised, neglected. We want you to keep in mind those who are unable to provide for themselves, right? those who are in need, those who have no one else to stand up for them. And then uh, we talked about this phrase earlier, but that phrase, those who seemed influential, right? verses 2, 6, and 9, those who seemed influential. Um, like we said, Paul isn't undermining or he's not mocking 
the other apostles' authority here. But at the same time, I mean, if you look at verse 6, it seems like pretty clear too, right? He says in parentheses, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. I think he says that because for these believers, it would have been easier to revere people like Peter, James, and John, right? To look at them and say, oh, they were in, right? Like they personally knew Jesus. Um, They must be special, right? Like we, we better listen to what they say. And then, of course, in contrast, you had Paul, right? And we just read his testimony back in chapter one. Paul was a former murderer. He was a persecutor of the church. He was the most unlikely convert and preacher of the gospel that you can imagine. He was an apostle that didn't meet Jesus the conventional way. I mean, relatively speaking, Paul is this newcomer to the scene. And here he is preaching the gospel, even correcting this other apostle, Peter. In all of these instances, the gospel radically redefines matters of identity. Your standing before God and others. No longer is the most significant thing about your ethnicity or your credentials or your expertise or your past, no matter how shameful or sinful you might, you might have been. It's, it's no, you're no longer defined by how much you have, right? whether you're rich or whether you're poor. In fact, many of these worldly standards and expectations, they are turned completely upside down because of the gospel. As believers, the gospel of grace, God's grace becomes the lens through which we view others with. And that means that as Romans 15.7 puts it, we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And if Christ has welcomed anyone, then we ought to follow that, right? How can we say otherwise? Or as Peter how can I stand in God's way? I think that the, temp- the problem and temptation for us is that we create these man-made standards, right? We have these uh, rules for how we evaluate others and then we treat other people according to our own rules, Right? The, the way that James 2.4 puts it is that we make distinctions among ourselves. Uh, we become judges with evil thoughts. If you want to use the word from our passage, you can use the word partiality in verse 6. Right? And that word uh, partiality, we translate it, uh, it literally means receiving the face. Okay, Receiving the face. You receive or you welcome or regard someone based on the face or based on something external. Um, it's to show favoritism. And we do this all the time. We have these standards, like, I want to hang around this kind of person, and so we decide who our friends are based on that. I want to talk to this kind of person who can make conversation easy, and so we approach a kind of person like that. And I want you to notice the different manifestations of that heart issue, even in our passage. For for the false brothers, for the circumcision party, it was excluding others. And maybe this is more obvious. They were looking down on others as inferior to them. Right, um, they were saying to the Gentiles, "You can't sit with us." But for those like Peter and Galatians believers, this is maybe more subtle. It was manifested for them um, in fear of man. Right? Maybe it wasn't excluding other people, but it was putting certain people up on a pedestal, and so they would compromise their morals, they would compromise their convictions in order to gain acceptance, in order to belong, right? In order to be part of this crowd that they really looked up to. And so do you see how these like distinctions, these values, these standards that we have set up for how we evaluate other people, how we view other people, that that's really ruling our relationships. And more than that, it's really ruling our hearts. And these are our idols, as we often put it here at Lighthouse. And so instead of seeing other people as people to love, people who God has accepted in the gospel, I'm seeing other people as means to my own end. I'm seeing other people as, are they going to help me to get this one thing that I want? This one thing that I treasure. Whether that thing is your own self-righteousness, or your security, or your comfort, or your status, or even just a sense of belonging. For example, if concern about your own reputation is what is ruling your heart, then you are going to naturally gravitate towards those who make you look good. Those who make you... um, You know, other people admire you. If your own comfort and convenience is what is ruling your heart, then you're going to gravitate towards those who are easy to be around. Those who don't have a lot of problems that they bring to you. Those who say nice things to you. If your own self-righteousness, your own self of morality, 
is, is what's ruling your heart, a sense of spiritual pride, then like the Pharisee in the parable, you're always going to look at others in relation to yourself. You will always uh, feel the need to prop yourself up with your good works and also the need to push others down by pointing out their flaws. So Beacon, when you think about the different people in your life, the, the way that you approach your relationships, I mean, what are some of the distinctions that you make in your own heart? What are some of these other man-made standards that you hold other people to as a kind of works-based gospel? Right? You're saying, you know, I will accept you in my eyes if you do this or if you do that. I will accept you if you can give me this or you can give me that. And maybe more simply, one place to start is just to ask yourself, do I love those who are different from me? And who are the kinds of people that I have most trouble moving towards? Who are the kinds of people that I, I like naturally want to avoid, or that I don't want to move towards, that I don't want to be around? In our passage, Peter sinfully and hypocritically compromises. Right? He is one way here and another way there. But Paul's passion for the gospel is the same, whether they're in Jerusalem or whether they're in Antioch. Why? Because Peter's actions, Paul knows, would communicate that Gentiles were either in or out of the family of God. Right? What Peter was doing was basically saying you're either accepted to God and you belong to him or you don't. Right? You are either in the kingdom of heaven, a citizen of heaven, or you're not. Right? There's no in-between. You can't just be like, oh, like you're kind of halfway in God's people. There's no second-class citizen. And, and Paul understands to show partiality, to view others wrongly, or to set up our own man-made standards rather than God's standards is to be out of step with the gospel. Now, for many of you, I think your struggle um, in this area probably, I mean, some, for some of you, I think, yeah, we, we should examine the ways that we do exclude others. Uh, but I think for, for others of you, your struggle in this area probably manifests itself in fear of man. Uh, you have this like just desire to belong and to be accepted. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right? You, you pursue the approval of others, um, whether it's a certain group of friends or your parents or those at church or in WCF um, or even like a potential employer um, or grad school. And maybe you don't intentionally exclude other people or you discriminate in order to like just be mean or you know, to make other people feel bad but you like single-mindedly just pursue acceptance and that sense of belonging. You'll do whatever you can get or whatever you can do to just get into this group, right? Or just to be accepted. How does the gospel speak to that, to that fear of man, that sense of belonging? Well, here's one way. The gospel not only tells us that we're all on equal ground, right? We're all on level ground as sinners in need of grace. But the gospel also tells us that we belong to and that we are accepted by God. That we belong to God whose love is secure and unchanging and rooted in Christ's work on the cross. Um, I, I like how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. Uh, you guys might have heard this in the sermon uh, here at Lighthouse, but the question that the Catechism asks is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is that I am not my own. Belong with both, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. And so, like we said, God doesn't love this other person, right, because of what he or she can do. And so that means I ought to welcome them, right? I ought, I ought to accept them, to love them freely and graciously, like God does. But also, God doesn't love me because of what I can do. And so that means that I can rest in the fact that I am loved by him, right? that I belong to him. I don't have to fear being rejected by others because I know that their love, the love of others, of this world, of other human beings will never be as safe and secure as the love of my Savior. We belong to God. And so we don't have to fear. We don't have to uh, fear not belonging to others. Now, just one more thought as we close. And as you think about just what the gospel means for um, our relationships and belonging, um, I want you to see that not only do we belong to God, but we also, as Christians, as the family of God, we belong to one another. 
that we have this community of other brothers and sisters called by his grace. And in this community, the only requirement, the only prerequisite is the gospel of grace. And as one person put it, all you need is need itself. Right? All you need is your need for God's grace. And as I was prepping for this message, I noticed that uh, a lot of other preachers, when they preached this message, they like really focused on the fact that this is an instance of Paul rebuking Peter. And it's just like how like shocking that is and just, um, you know, just this idea of confrontation and correcting one another. And um, I decided to take a different angle, but I do want to point out how that is really significant. Okay, not just in the sense because like these are two, you know, like theological heavyweights who are kind of in conflict, but because I think this is a picture of gospel-centered, grace-filled relationship. Right, this is such a contrast to the kind of relationships that we so often try to seek in this world. Right, to be accepted by our own works. And this is such a contrast to that. A gospel-centered, grace-filled relationship. I mean, just think about who Peter was. And at this point, Peter is an established apostle. He's the leader of the church. He is respected. But if you guys remember from the Gospels, like Peter was not like that. Peter had his flaws. He had his shortcomings. And in fact, if you are familiar with the Gospels, this isn't the first time that we've seen him struggle with fear of man, right? And Peter was the apostle who famously denied Jesus three times because of his fear of man. And when you read this, it's like years later, you think to yourself, like, shouldn't he have gotten it by now? Like, how is this still a struggle for him? Maybe you can relate to that. Like, you think of a particular sin in your life, and you're like, it's just the same thing over and over again. Right? I've failed so many times. Like, I've heard so many sermons. I should be better at this. Like, why can't I just be better? Why can't I just get over this? And then you have Paul. And he's not just bold, and he's, he's not just passionate enough, but he's also loving enough. To, to correct Peter. And how he does it, I think it's just so helpful. It's so instructive for us. Um, later on in Galatians 6.1, he's going to say, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And I think we kind of miss, like, how, how is that happening here? Because he's like reposing him to his face. But follow along. If you look back at verse 14 in our passage, you might see um, there's a quotation mark right at the end of that verse. And it kind of seems like that what Paul is saying to Peter ends right there at the end of verse 14. But it's actually debatable whether the quote ends there or whether it keeps going and, and ends somewhere in the, the following verses. And um, so that, that quotation mark in your Bible is kind of like an interpretive decision that the editors made. Right? And I'm inclined to think that it actually keeps going beyond verse 14. And if that's the case, I love how Paul appeals to Peter here. And look at verse 14. He says, if you, Peter, though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And then verse 15, notice the pronoun. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. And we think about the kinds of words and the phrases that you or I might have been tempted to use to correct someone else in that situation. If you were in Paul's shoes, what would you say to Peter? And not only that, but especially with hypocrisy. I feel like hypocrisy is one of those things that just like makes us extra mad. Right? Like, we hold back even less with hypocrisy because they should know better. Right? You'd say things like, are you serious? How could you? You call yourself an apostle? How could you be such a hypocrite? Right? How can you even preach the message that you just preached and then do this? And yet, what does Paul do? He moves from you to we so quickly. He says, don't you know, Peter, that we have been justified? Right? But not by works, but through faith in Christ. Don't you know that this is who we are in the gospel? See, the heartbeat, the motivation is not fear of man, because what would that do? It would just made Peter going from fearing one person to fearing Paul. Right? It's not guilt. 
It's not, don't you know you should or you shouldn't do this? Why? Because that's just another law, right? That's just another gospel of works. No, the heartbeat, the motivation is the gospel of grace. Paul says, Peter, let me remind you of who we are in the gospel. Let's think through the gospel together. And I love that this is in here in this passage. That in this passage that convicts us of our partiality, of all the ways that we make distinctions among ourselves, all the ways that we elevate or we put down other people, all the ways that we wrongly evaluate others according to our own man-made standards, we get this picture of grace-filled, gospel-centered relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Right? We get this picture of a kind of relationship and a kind of community where we can speak the truth in love, and yet we can also stand corrected. Right? We get this picture of where even recovering hypocrites, right, of those who can't get it right the first time, are welcome. Right? And there's hope and there's grace, whether Jew or Gentile. All are welcome because of the gospel of grace. And so this is the, the kind of community that the gospel frees us for. Right? The gospel puts us in. You're going to pray that this would be true of us, right? that we would be these kinds of people. We would be that kind of community. Let's pray. Father, we do confess that the way that we view others um, is so wrong, or that we make so many uh, of our own standards and rules and we judge people based on just such superficial and unimportant things. And, and we confess, Lord, that there are so many times that we are out of step with the gospel, that you have um, revealed to us the gospel of grace, the gospel that is for Jew and Gentile, um, for the good person and for the bad, even the worst of sinners. And um, yeah, that our lives are not consistent with that. Our lives um, don't always preach that gospel to others. And so I pray just for conviction, for repentance, where there needs to be repentance. I pray that you would show us um, just also the joy and the hope um, of being a part of a, a community that is defined by your gospel and defined by your grace. And so as we move into a time of small groups, I pray for just fruitful conversations. Help us to further think about this passage and how it applies to our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.